Girlfriends, episode number 294, Hope and Healing After Enormous Loss with Kelly Bro. Hello and welcome to Girlfriends. I'm Danielle Bean. I'm a wife and a mom, and I'm on a mission to help you know your worth as a woman so you can find peace, balance, and joy in family living. This week, I am joined by Kelly Bro, who has a heartbreaking, gut-wrenching story to share of tremendous loss, but also enormous hope and healing is part of her story. I can't wait to share this really moving testimony with you. Let's get started. Hey, hello. So glad you are here. Thanks for joining me for this newest episode of the Girlfriends podcast. You know, I am always glad to be able to connect with you here. So if you are a longtime or sometime listener, I want to welcome you back. If you are a new listener, I want to welcome you to our community of girlfriends here. I hope you're going to want to stick around. I'm glad you're giving us a try. So this week, my guest is Kelly Bro, who has a story of really tremendous loss to share, but such a powerful testimony to the goodness and the mercy of God and God's faithfulness, even through tremendous suffering, grief, and loss, things we would never choose on our own. He brings good out of all of these things. Such a powerful story I'm going to share with you, but I did want to give people a warning that if this is a sensitive topic for you, Kelly's going to be sharing about the loss of two of her children, infant loss. If this is something that's a fresh wound for you or something that's a sensitive topic for you, if listening to this story might do you more harm than good, feel free to just skip this episode. I want this to be an episode that's going to offer people hope and healing with whatever kind of suffering you might be going through. You know, um, that's what really struck me when I had this really powerful conversation with Kelly afterwards. I was so moved by what she shared because suffering is something that affects all of us. We all need to figure out how to handle suffering. But I don't want to add to your suffering. If you're suffering through something really a heavy burden with regard to this particular topic right now, then this might not be the show for you to listen to. But there's so much good here. And Kelly shares in such an authentic way, such a humble way, her own struggles, her own story, that there's so much here that regardless of your experience with this particular topic or your background or your lack of experience, there's something for all of us to learn inside of Kelly's beautiful and very moving story. And I also want you to learn about her ministry as well. So can't wait to share this conversation with you. Here we go. Joining me here today on Girlfriends is Kelly Bro. Ryan and Kelly Bro gave birth to a set of twins in 2005, a son, Talon, and daughter, Emma Grace. Talon died after 15 days with Emma Grace joining her brother in heaven three years later. Their lives were propelled into a personal journey of both discovery and recovery after battling a decade of darkness in their marriage. By the grace of God, their marriage was saved. Through the sacraments of the Catholic Church, the bros found healing and restoration. Through personally experiencing the loss of a child and through their own suffering, the thirst of bringing those who suffer back to the light and to the Lord grew. Therefore, they look to Mother Teresa, patroness of Redbird Ministries, for passion and inspiration to serve those who are suffering, specifically through the loss of a child. In the gift of restoration, they felt called to help others navigate the pain and unexpected challenges that come from the loss of a child. And through their first divine vocation of parenthood, Redbird Ministries was born. Welcome to Girlfriends Kelly Bro. I'm so glad you're here. Well, thank you for the invite. I 
look forward to our morning. <laughs> yes, I'm really, really encouraged by your story. It is a beautiful story. It is obviously a painful story, something you never would have chosen. And yet this ministry that you have founded is so very needed. And, you know, the, the evidence of that is the awards that it's been winning. I, after we booked our interview, I saw, uh, maybe you can just at the start of our conversation here, share with us the updated news from our Sunday visitor. Yeah. So we applied last February for that, our Sunday visitor innovation challenge among 600 other Catholic apostolates. Mm -hmm. And we were excited, you know, to get into the second round Then we made it into the semifinalists which dwindled down to 24 and we made it to the finals till 12. And then we had the opportunity to pitch in front of a panelist, um, our business plan and a pitch deck. And mm -hmm. we were awarded one of three $100,000 grants Wow! on September 18th. Yes. Yeah, so we're super excited. So exciting. Congratulations <laughs> on that. Well-deserved. You know, I'm so encouraged that our Sunday visitor does that and um, that this this exists because I've seen so many wonderful ministries benefit from this, but I am truly excited for you and, and what, what opportunities this is going to open up for Redbird Ministries. Thank you. We're excited too, because uh, we have a lot of programs that we want to develop um, right. for, for the church and to help families like ours. Mm -hmm. um, and this will give us the opportunity uh, to, to do the second set of what we want to do. Right. So we're very excited about that. Right. So this is your, your story is an encouraging one and an inspiring one. But of course, your, your twins, Talon and Emma Grace, were born all the way back in 2005. So this isn't something that happened overnight. You know, God works in over, over the course of time. And I know that this ministry wasn't born immediately out of the pain that you had and you had years of struggle there. Can you share with us a little bit about that? Yeah, so we delivered our twins uh, in 2005, October 16, 2005. My placenta abrupted, so they had to take them both. You know, it was our our first pregnancy. Mm -hmm. I was 25 years old, so just I, I had no idea what was going on. So right. some of these questions, like typically, like a mother who already had a child would ask. Like Ron and I didn't really know to ask these questions, so mm -hmm. we kind of just assumed if they were born alive, everything was gonna you know, be okay. Right. Um, and we quickly found out after a couple of days that things were not okay. Um, Talon developed an infection in the NICU called Pseudomonas sepsis. Mm -hmm. And still, I, you know, in my innocence, I was like, if he, if they give him, you know, antibiotics, like he, he's going to be okay. Like, you know, mm -hmm. what we do for sure. any other type of infection. And that wasn't the case. And on day 15, um, we were told to call our family uh, and later that night, he passed away. Oh, wow. And it was really where I think the first chasm of my faith began. My faith began to develop, but I still could pray. Mm -hmm. I still was. I still could pray. Um, so that was very hopeful. And we, um, Ron and I, were very hopeful that uh, we were hopeful that Emma Grace was going to be okay. But I remember sitting in the the NICU after they cleaned him off and brought him to me. I remember looking at the doctor in fear and it was like 10 minutes after he had died. And I told him, do not let her die too. Um, so I began mm -hmm. to live my life in, in fear. Yeah. And C.S. Lewis talks about grief in a way that he says, like he never knew grief was like fear. 
And that's kind of how it manifested itself in my life. Like I no longer had the ability to just trust like that I struggled with trust, I, tr- right. I struggled with surrender um, because it wasn't just a reality that this happens to another family, like mm-hmm. it had happened to our family. Um, right, right. I think you, you, that's a really good point to make because I think that's many people's experience in whatever way you experience loss or grief is that you feel like, oh, this wasn't this wasn't part of the deal, right? And so then mm-hmm. it feels like, oh, there there is no deal and that's a very scary yeah. place to be. Yeah, I had never in my entire life, my 25 years, ever felt out of control. Like, mm-hmm. I've always had pride in myself. Like, we got married at 22, you know, I had like my little yeah. life planned. Yeah. And I, and all of a sudden, there was just no control, like nothing I could control. And I was on type A, so it was very <laughs> scary for me. So the day that we buried Talon, um, we found out that Emma had an infection and I really came unglued. There was anger. I was just mad at everything because it's like not her too. Mm -hmm. And, um, but Emma responded well to the the infection uh, from the antibiotics uh, from the infection. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a different type of infection and she did actually, you know, start to heal from it. Um, But we noticed like two weeks later that she had, she was starting to have some complications and through, Mm -hmm. Uh, a CT scan, they uh, realized that she had developed an aneurysm in her vascular system from the infection. And so we had to actually uh, be transferred from, we live in Lafayette, Louisiana, mm-hmm. um, to Fort Worth, Texas at Cook Children, where she had an eight-hour vascular surgery. Wow. After the surgery, the doctor told us that um, there could be complications. And we were very, very hopeful um, she, she began to recover, um, but there was a possibility that because of the way that the one of the aneurysms after it was repaired, it had clotted off after surgery, mm-hmm. and they just couldn't remove it because of complications uh, that could arise, um, and so they weighed they outweighed the risks versus actually re- you know taking the clot out. Right. And um, so Emma was put on medicines like clot blusters, and we did Lovenox injections and. After a hundred days, almost a hundred days in the hospital, she came home. It was mm-hmm. three days past her her due date, so that's really good when you a preemie. A we they try to shoot for you to come home around your due date. Okay. Um, but she got sent home. She was four pounds four ounces, and wow. she was on ten different medications, one injection daily that I would have to give to her, and on oxygen twenty four hours a day. Oh my gosh! I can't so imagine suddenly, how frightening that must have been. Yes. Yeah, Suddenly, I was responsible to to be the one to keep her alive, right. and I just I just did not do well with that. Right, um, right. Who would? That's when I just I started having severe anxiety, mm-hmm. I, and which I didn't know that's what it was. You, you never had this before, um, but it presented itself. I couldn't not I couldn't keep food down, so I would every time like I would go to eat, I would throw up and like I was losing weight and so my husband was really really worried about me and you know we didn't have um the luxury of him taking time off you know he took Mm -hmm. days here and there but we couldn't afford it and so he was forced to go back to work you know because we needed money to pay bills we needed like um, health insurance because Emma had medical medical needs beyond just uh what was normal we were 25 years old Mm-hmm. And um, 
so it was a very scary time for us. And mm-hmm. during this time, uh, I did become, I did start taking anxiety medicine, but also uh, saw a therapist. Mm-hmm. And therapy got me to a place where I was just good enough. And I say that because, you know, I like my, in my naivety, I never even thought to see a Catholic therapist. Mm-hmm. I just saw someone that was recommended to me. Um, but I know now the difference is that it would have made in my life. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so after after a couple of sessions with her, um, I, I just felt like she did. She couldn't help me. She hadn't lost a child. I, I felt like I didn't belong in this place. Like there was just this disconnect in the way that she couldn't properly, I guess, understand like my fears. Like it wasn't like I wanted to die. I felt like life had left me already. And it was just in this, in this, like my, my, my child died. I mm-hmm. feel like my other child is going to die. And our children are like our hearts walking on earth. Right. It was just like, I felt like I didn't have a purpose other than providing like medical needs for her, mm-hmm. um, which I felt incapable of doing very um, of course. unqualified. So daunting. So then things started to, things did start to turn a corner. I still, I stayed on my medication because it was helping. I was able to, to take care of myself and to take mm-hmm. care of her. And we started to begin to enjoy things. We uh, were able to get her baptized after uh, our pulmonologist gave us the okay for her to go in public. We celebrated her first birthday and we were just really enjoying her. And when she was two years old, we found out that uh, from the surgery, one of the complications was, uh, and we saw it over time, but we, at this point when she was two, we got the diagnosis that the complication from the surgery she had at five weeks old mm-hmm. had caused her right leg to have severe growth damage um, oh, no. from the lack of blood flow. And so that's when the first time that we heard the word that the only way that she would have a good quality of life okay. is if we would amputate her right foot. Oh, wow. And I I just, I panic and I was, I rejected that immediately. I was just, I can't do it. I just, Everything right. she had going through, it was just like, I can't make another hard decision. It was just too much. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Ryan and I started looking around for second opinions, saying we found a doctor in Baltimore, Maryland. And so when she was two and a half, we traveled there to meet with him. He uh, he was a limb lengthening expert. He had taken research and uh, from overseas and br- was brought it to the United States. He was the first doctor to perform this leg lengthening procedure. Mm-hmm. And so we went to see him and he told us that um, she was a candidate, but there's a time, a period where the bones grow the most. And so we would have to do the surgery at that time, Okay, which would be at three and a half. So there was a whole year that we would have to wait. Mm-hmm. And so we were okay with that. We came up with a plan. It allowed us to uh, like figure things out because we were going to have to move uh, to Baltimore at least for six months, so temporarily move. Mm-hmm. Well, during that time, I got pregnant, and I just like it's whenever you have a sick child, like you know, I wanted to be happy, but at the same time, I felt like I failed him. I was like, how am I going to take care of her right. with all her needs? Like, yeah, it's with such the complicated new yeah. yeah, yeah. So I wrestled with that quickly overcame it. But, you know, initially, you know, yeah. I know lots of women, you know, struggle with this 
like I shouldn't be feeling this. And it just, it's so unnatural. It really is. And you know, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not a natural response, but mm-hmm. it is the reality of the situation once you lose. Um, right. And then you're, you know, taking care of your other child. And um, so overcame that. Estelle was born on January 6th of 2009. Healthy baby. Mm-hmm. So different than the right. twins. We have, I finally had a normal like experience. So it, it brought some healing to that, mm-hmm. which was beautiful. Emma loved her sister. Um, she was so in love with her sister. Mm-hmm. And we prepared to get ready to go to the surgery. And so from the time that Estelle was born, um, well, bef- while we were pregnant, we found out that her doctor, at, which we didn't know when the year before, mm-hmm. had made a decision that him and his partner were going to split so that they could have two clinics in the United States to be performing this type of surgery. Um, and a lot of the patients had come from overseas. So he wanted to get closer to the Miami area. Okay. So he moved his practice down in Florida. And so we uh, rescheduled our little plans that we were going to go to Florida and not Baltimore, which is scary too. Yeah. Um, so we decided uh, we we're going to pack up a, like a week early uh, before her um surgery and we were going to take the girls to Disney World. So that's what we did. We left Louisiana. We drove to uh, West Palm Beach, Florida. We unloaded our car with all of our goods. And Mm -hmm. then we turned around and went and took the girls to Disney World. Mm -hmm. Well, we had no idea that at some point or another that Emma Grace had contracted H1N1 um, and it didn't manifest itself until the day that she had her surgery. So oh my gosh. she had her surgery and that evening. So that was uh, on July 24th of 20 of 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, she had her surgery and that night. She started having febr- febrile seizures. Okay. So they rushed her away to the PICU. Um, they were testing her. We, n- nothing was coming out, like no blood. When they do, uh, they test blood. Everything in the blood looked correct. They would test her nasal. Um, everything looked normal. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of pl- perplexed. Uh, but on day five, it came back positive in her blood work, um, positive H1N1 um, case. Mm-hmm. Um, it really wasn't talked about. Like, we didn't even know this existed, you know, right. back in 2009. It was before, really, um social media. Yeah. I'm trying to remember when that became a thing, like that people were aware of. Yeah. I think I got my first smartphone in 2009. So it, you know, it, Facebook was something it, they did have Facebook, but it was just not used in the context that it's used today. So we, um, on day five, after we received the diagnosis, things kind of got really bad for her. And, um, I remember one morning she had woken up, uh, I think two days before that, and she uh, she looked at me, and she's such an adventurous little girl. She mm-hmm. opened her eyes, and she said, Mommy, where are we going today? And oh. I laughed because it was like, okay, my, my girl's back. She, <laughs> this is what she would ask me every morning. Where are we Aww. going today? <laughs> and I told her, I said, we're not going anywhere, sis. You're in the hospital. You have to get better. And so she closed her eyes, and then she opened them again, and she said, I love you, Mommy. And she, she, she like, looked at me with this. This deep look, and she said, "I love you so much." And she closed her eyes, and that was the last time. Wow. 
her speak. Mm. Things got really bad. They rushed her to to uh, Miami. They had to pick her up and air matter to Miami Children's because um, they didn't have the proper equipment to be able to help her. So we were flown again, forty five minutes away, and um, she lived seven day, seven weeks. I'm sorry, on um, an ECMO machine. Okay. And on se- September tenth of two thousand and nine is when she passed away, and. Oh. I did not have a good response to it. I was so angry at God because I was like, I, Talon died. I still prayed. I still trusted. Mm-hmm. I still had hope. And when Emma died, I was just so angry. Yeah. When I left the hospital um, I, with my family in the elevator, I, I, I said it out loud. I was like, I hate you, God. Like, mm-hmm. I trusted you. I put all my faith in and you let me down. And it was this darkness that just came over over me. Right. We left and we drove 19 hours back home without her, which I was freaked out about because they had to embalm her and then fly her back. I was so scared they would like lose her. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, I cannot even imagine the trauma of that. Wow. Wow. And so we came back home, planned another funeral um, at our parish and... It was our parish was so good to us, um, and after the funeral, you know, I, I, I never expected to feel this way, but um, it was almost like a divorce. They were so good to us during that time, and then it's like we never heard from anyone again. Right, and I was the the church was able to provide us the Christian rite of burial, but like everybody else's life just moved on. Not not just our parish, our family, everybody's life moves on. Sure. And you're you're stuck to pick up these pieces of this very traumatic event that happens. And I needed like I needed the church to to run to my aid. Like I needed yeah. someone to help me to make sense of this. Mm-hmm. And there was just nothing in our diocese or our parish that provided the support that we needed. Wow. Um, so I did not have uh, I did not have a good response to my loss. Um, no one was speaking truth over me. It's mm-hmm. like all these lies that you begin to to believe, you know, because of this pain that this new pain that has entered your life. Right. Um, it started. It started to affect my thoughts and my feelings, of course. I no longer could pray. I remember like sitting in mass and I would hear a baby cry and I would be triggered and I'd have, I'd run out or I'd have a flashback of the coffin and I couldn't breathe and I'd run out. And after a while, um, you just, I couldn't handle, I couldn't handle the triggers of being in my home parish. Sure. And so we stopped going to mass and about four years later, it was a total of about four years that I did not step foot in the church, mm-hmm. not because, and not because I, I chose. I just it was just a natural response to the pain that kept uh, that kept entering in my life with the triggers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still, Estelle, at the time she was eight months old when Emma died, uh, I still wanted. I still wanted her to experience all that. So we, mm-hmm. at four years old, we registered registered her for Catholic school. I, we had to do all this stuff with our parish and with the parish yeah. school. So we did that. And a couple weeks later, I guess she like caught on to like on Thursday morning mass that other mommies were going with their their babies. And uh, she she told me one day, she said, Mom, will you come to mass with me on Thursday? And I was like, 
it was the first time that someone had invited me back because yeah. people would kind of tiptoe around around us. Um, How beautiful it was your daughter that invited you back. It was my daughter and she was four and a half years old and she would not let up. And I was like, I don't want to go. And she was like, I want you to go in her little, you know, kid way. Yes. And um, uh, so finally I went back to mass with her um, and it wasn't so scary. Like, mm-hmm. you know, because time does help you to cope with these triggers. And sure. so I was able to walk back through the doors. I was able to go through mass. Um, I still was battling with my anger with God. Um, my husband like tip really tiptoed around my feelings. Uh, we had experienced all of the same trauma, mm-hmm. but we never talked about it again. Okay. You know, so it would manif- stopped going as well. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. We both did. Um, he didn't, he didn't know how to help me. And that was just so scary for him. Uh, during these four years, like people had, you know, go back to church. And I would say, why, why pray? Like I prayed, I begged God and he doesn't, he, he doesn't answer prayers. And I never like ever in that time when I was on my knees praying for God to heal her, I never thought that healing would mean death and going to heaven. I never like never considered that because that was just too traumatic. It was more than I could accept. Um, and so Ryan and I really never talked about, we never really talked about it unless we would be drinking, which then brings shame and embarrassment because you shouldn't be having these important conversations when you're intoxicated. Mm -hmm. And so additional, just, uh, heartache, um, from our marriage, just not being in a place where it needed to be. And, you know, Ryan's faith was very personal and very private. But, you know, down here in the South, there was a long time that, you know, generations would tell you, you don't talk about faith, you don't talk about politics. And so his faith was just untalked about. Like Mm -hmm. he would pray all the way to work for me, all the way back and, you know, and just, like beg God, please bring us back to church. But he never said, Hey, let's go to church. Never, ever told Uh me any of that. Um, and when he finally told me that, of course, years, years later, like seven years after Emma died, I felt so betrayed. I was like, why didn't you speak up and tell me like, you know, once I got to a place where it was healing, I was like, right. And I was like, we went through seven years of darkness that could have been prevented. And it was just, he didn't know better. You know, right. this was his. Right. Everything's clear when you're looking back on it. Absolutely. You could see everywhere where God was. I just couldn't see it in that moment. It was so much fog, so much darkness that it really, you know, grief makes you turn inward. It makes you navel gaze. And it's very hard to stop because you're just in so much pain. Mm-hmm. Um, so after, after Estelle invited us back, so we would go on Thursday mass, but we wouldn't go on Sunday, every Sunday. So it was kind of just like a slow process. Mm-hmm. And then two years later, my friend and her daughter were driving home from a concert and a drunk driver hit them and her 10-year-old daughter died. Oh my gosh. And it was a, like a drop to the knee moment because instantly I just had all these thoughts and all these feelings of what my friend was now experiencing. Right. Um, like PTSD. Very much so. And so I ran to her side and, you know, just I tried to help her as best as possible. But uh, over the course of, a, you know, a couple of weeks, 
I realized she wasn't responding the same way as me. It's like where, you know, I ran from the cross like Peter denied Jesus. I didn't want anything to do with any of my faith. Right. After Emma died, she was standing at the foot of the cross and she forgave the drunk driver. You know, she continued to pray her divine mercy chaplet. Um, the day that they were burying her daughter, she was supposed to leave to go make her curcio. So I'm like, surely she's not going to want to go there. I was just like waiting for right. her to, to respond the way I did. And she wasn't. And so there was something so beautiful by it. But the way that what happens when you're in mortal sin, like the enemy started whispering why you couldn't do it, you know, mm-hmm. why you didn't have the ability. You weren't strong. You're weak. And so I started to have like this battle within me that was, you know, wanted to go to be with her because she just was exuberating the blessed mother. But mm-hmm. I felt such a sense of shame and embarrassment. Mm-hmm. And I was still a mortal sin at the time. And um, so my friend, like she gets back from Curcio, she starts a prayer group. She's like doing all these things to like bring the community to, of our friends together, like in this time of tragedy when right. it was her child that died. And um, I was just, I was in awe, but also too like cautious because I just didn't know how to like receive ever, all of this. Mm-hmm. And then one day we were in a prayer group and she asked me in front of my friends, she's like, um, Kelly, when will you be ready to make Crescio? And I was like, mm-hmm. you know, I lied to her. I said, I can't make Crescio because I haven't made my confirmation which is not the truth. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, but time out in case anybody doesn't know what Curcio is. Can you briefly okay. explain? Yeah. So Curcio is uh, like three day, a four day walk with the Holy Spirit. You can only do it once in your life. Um, it was designed and came from, uh, from Spain. Um, this priest uh, was watching these young men leave for war and he realized he was like, we're asking them to go and to fight and to protect our country. And we are not preparing them uh if they die to go to heaven. Mm-hmm. And so he created this, uh, this movement called Crescio. It's means short course. And so it's like a catechism in four days, but it's, it's a profound experience. Even if you're super faithful, it just brings you on another level closer to God. So mm-hmm. you can either go if you have deep wounds or you can go, um, to strengthen your faith life. Yeah. So it's, it's for anyone. Um, but the, the beauty of Crescio is that you have to be able to receive the sacrament. So you have to um, you have to be able to receive. So married in the mm-hmm. church, uh, you have to have made your uh, have to been baptized and your and first confirmed. communion. Wait, so back but to your lie no, about so not being confirmed. That's that's not the truth. You don't have to be confirmed. And my friend <laughs> sold me out because she had made she had made her Crescio without her confirmation. But the difference with this situation. And anyone else over the seven years before was that they were telling me what to do. Mm-hmm. And I would respond in anger because they had not lost a child. Mm-hmm. Um, my friend Shandy told me, she said, um, that's not true. She said, but if that's important to you, how about we both join our CIA and make our confirmation together? Oh, wow. Yeah. So her and I joined our CIA. I was 37 years old. And at the time, our parish still did confirmation together. So I made my confirmation with the 11th graders, which is super embarrassing, <laughs> <laughs> but totally a lesson in humility. Oh, my um, goodness. That's so funny. They do so, it that yeah. way. They, yeah. They don't do it like that anymore. Father right. McIntyre was like, for good I reason. Know. Yeah. For good reasons. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so two months after I made my confirmation, I left to go 
uh, to Crescio, mm-hmm. and it was the first time that I had ever encountered Christ in the depths of my soul, and mm-hmm. I know why now. It's because every other time that I'd ever, it was just like little bits of uh, grace that I was getting, but I had never been in this in this space where I was in sanctifying grace for so long mm-hmm. and receiving the sacraments on top of the sacraments during these four days to, to come face to face with Christ. Mm-hmm. There was always something that was in between him and I. And it allowed me to experience that, and it and it like truly changed my life. Mm-hmm. I got home, and my husband he he laughs. He says you were like floating on a cloud, <laughs> <laughs> and I wrapped my arms around him, and I t- I just I just started crying. And I told him I was so sorry for being so mean to him mm-hmm. because he's the one that, of course, experienced all my anger. Right, and of he, course, and he just loved me through that. And was oh, praying no. the whole time. Imagine <laughs> yeah. how he must have felt seeing his prayers answered in this way. What a beautiful moment. It was very beautiful. Um, yeah. So our our whole life changed. Um, so we started praying together as a family. We started, um, you know, we started going back to church, like really going back to church, but not just on Sundays, you right. know, the whole crazy Catholic thing that we were going all the time, you know, just couldn't consume God, like God enough. Mm-hmm. And it was just, just this whole revelation. Like, it's like, once you've been in darkness and you've climbed your way out of it, it's like, it's almost like a fear to go back. And so the way that God used my vices was that he brought me, you know, he, he used my vices to bring me to virtue. So this like desperation and this fear that I had lived in before, he used that to draw me closer to him. So it was uh-huh. like, a total shift and like I restored my relationship with Jesus Christ because he, you know, he healed me. And then like, it was like a progression mm-hmm. all the way to restoring my relationship with God. And mm-hmm. um, a year later, Ryan made his Crescio because he, he would giggle too. Cause he like, now he giggles. Cause he was like, I was not the one that lost my faith. And finally, after he made Crescio, he was like, Oh, he was like, there's a lot of things I did wrong that I didn't do right. <laughs> And that's when, after he made Crescio, it's like when like everything like just flip-flopped and was right ordered where before, you know, like if you'd asked me, you know, do you want to go to heaven? Well, of course my kids are there. Right. I I have this, this desire to go to heaven. (laughs) It just exuberated, but it wasn't because God was there. It was because my kids were there. And so I had this like disordered thinking, which later, you know, one of my friends told me the other day. She's like, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of like idolatry. And I was, I told her, I was like, Pam, do not say that to anybody. <laughs> and, but she's so, it's so true. But you right. can't tell that to someone who's just lost a child. They'll someone who's crazy. grieving their child, of course. Yes. Right. So you right. have to love them into that. And you have to walk with them so that they can come back into right order thinking and back into sanctifying grace. But it's some, it's a process and you have to be very gentle with these families because, you know, it's very traumatic. Like even, even when it's not a, a like, even when the death is not traumatic, the mm-hmm. loss of a child is traumatic. Right. Um, right. And so, it, so everything came back to, it's like all of a sudden, like, you know, the scales were taken off our eyes, like uh, St. Paul, we could see very clearly, like what God did to us. We found this healing and Ryan 
had went to confession with um, a priest at the Man to Man conference uh, here, mm-hmm. and he asked us to go do a talk. Well, even though I had experienced this profound healing, when he came home and he asked me if I wanted to do the talk, I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> not ready still, for that. It was still this hesitation mm-hmm. um, because of fear. Of course. And so it took me about seven months to call this priest back. And so we committed to, we committed to doing one talk. I was like, I'll just do one talk. Well, mm-hmm. in the meantime, this priest got transferred from one of the, the smaller, more rural churches to like our biggest church in our diocese. Mm-hmm. And so Father Brady was like, okay, well, we'll have to wait a couple of months. He was like, I don't even know what's going on at this parish. Uh, and so we patiently were waiting. In the meantime, I was sat down one day and I was like, you know, if, you know, I, we have to go give a talk. I got, I got to write my testimony, and because I never, never put any of this on on paper. Right. Well, I started writing one morning, and I wrote all day, and it, it, it was way more than a talk. Uh, right. And I was like, it, it, it started to like make itself look like a book, and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, this is what you're asking me, Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 2019, my autobiography, Biography Hiding in the Upper Room was released, and it's on um, the, the primary focus is on how the Catholic sacraments healed me from the grief of child loss. Mm-hmm. Um, I had seen books like floating around about testimonies, uh, but whenever specifically I looked on how the sacraments heal, like in deep grief, mm-hmm. um, especially the loss of a child, which I was desperate to, to you know, to, to find. Right. There just wasn't anything that spoke to that specifically at the time when I started writing the book. And uh, I knew it was going to be a heart opener because a lot of the times when, you know, you lose a child, like you're the rea- like this thought process and, and this your reality is like, no one's ever going through this. No one's responded like in the way that I responded. If anyone has found healing, it's only because you know, they responded positively and Mm -hmm. mine was not, I mean, in my book, like you'll see there's so much more just pain and darkness that happened and this processing and this wrestle with God. Like I did not receive this cross (laughs) very willingly. I I rejected it. I didn't want to pick it up. didn't want to look at it. Rejected my rejected prayer. Like uh, I make a joke and say, like when people, you know, told me just pray, it was like, I mentally wanted to punch them. Um, (laughs) Totally understandable. (laughs) I just, I, it's easy to say that when mm-hmm. tra- then this deep trauma is not in your life. It's so easy to say that, right. but it's not received well. Mm-hmm. Like it's, I could only receive truth from someone who had experienced what I experienced. Sure, That's when it wasn't scary. That's when it was well received. Mm-hmm. And so processing everything that went, especially writing the book, I just came to this like deep understanding. It was like, God, showed me that the missing component of grief support groups of uh, healing was this peer-to-peer accompaniment with a spiritual component. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when I looked around, I was like, well, there's nothing in our community. Still to this day, we do have like secular organizations in our diocese, but there wasn't anything that was faith-based. Right. And so when I went to the diocese for the health and, you know, of, of course was like, this is beautiful. We would love for you to, to start something, but you need to go see what other dioceses and are doing and or other mm-hmm. parishes. Sure. And to see if there was any programs. 
So when I think of program, I think of like boxed programs. Like, you know, if you want to do youth ministry, there's Life Teen's Edge right. you know, or Life Teen to where a normal mom and a normal dad who doesn't have a theology degree, who doesn't have any type of training can go and implement like the theology is presented from someone who, of course, is uh, has their degree in, right. in uh, theology or like in our case, like the grief expert would come from someone who has that that professional degree, but it would be pre- presented in a way that any mom or dad who's experienced this could, um, you know, love people sure. in their bro- brokenness. And so when I started to look up, when we started to do the research, um, I went back to Father Halpin and I was like, Father, there's, there's nothing. The only thing that we could take and implement is an ecumenical program called Grief Share, which is a beautiful program, but it lacks sacraments. It lacks Mary. Um, Mm -hmm. There's parts of it that has to be taught by a theologian because Catholics view heaven differently. We we view death differently in a lot of uh, religions. And so like ecumenical just would not, it would not fit our needs. Mm -hmm. And so we began to piece together like projects all on Google Drive because, of course, we didn't have any money. Um, <laughs> and so like, the first thing we created was a couples workshop because I yeah. was like, we're going to serve these these couples. And the whole context of that couples workshop is to teach them how to communicate because mm-hmm. that was a big missing component, how to pray together, how to communicate and how to love one another through it. So we developed the Loving Through Loss Couples Workshop. It's a right. one day workshop. We developed a grief group study. It's called Finding the Passion of Christ in Our Story. And it's um, looking at Jesus's passion and realizing that our, even though Jesus, you know, of course, was for our salvation, there's a, a, a way that his story manifests our our healing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we began to develop that. Did you our, call it Redbird? Ministries right from the start, or how did that how did that name? Yes. Come? So my friend that her daughter died. Her name was Isley. When Isley passed away, um, it was right after a couple things had happened. Um, and I'm speaking specifically to this uh, local band. This mm-hmm. a, it's a Cajun folk band um, who's related to my friend and her family. They wrote a song called "Redbird Flies." It's the the band is called Sweet Cecilia. Mm-hmm. Um, very faithful Catholic women who uh, they do folk and um, Laura, their lead singer, also does Christian music. Mm-hmm. And so she wrote this song called The Red Bird Flies, and she listed five people in the song that every time she sees a red bird that she thinks of them. Oh. And so I asked my friend, I was like, could we call it Red Bird Flies, you know, for, for any parent or anyone who has experienced loss would think of their loved one. And, mm-hmm. and of course she said yes. And so that's why we named it. That's that. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's grown since then. So what year was that when yeah. you first were beginning to put together these workshops? So 2018. Okay. Wow. Yeah. yeah. A lot has happened in those few years. Yes. Amazing. Well, we've been blessed. I don't know if you're familiar with Witness to Love. Yes. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. Mary Rose and Ryan Verrett live 10 minutes away from our home. Okay, Ryan Barrett. So, yeah, just describe that ministry. For- <laughs> <laughs> so they, yeah, so they do marriage, mar- it, they're a marriage uh, movement. So they help with marriage prep, marriage uh, in enrichment. So they mm-hmm. help 
they help with any component of marriage just to mm-hmm. help to to build the church through relationships. So they live 10 minutes from our house and Roy and Verrett went to high school with my husband. Oh boy. And so through our conversion, we reconnected and they have been mentoring. They have been mentoring us. So our ministry has been <laughs> propelled quicker than mm-hmm. most because we had guidance from them yeah, from the start. Obviously God's providence there. Yes, I mean, the, absolutely. <laughs> the two Ryans went to high school together. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, that is beautiful. Kelly, this is such an amazing story. I mean, I I, I want to thank you for your honesty and your just your beautiful way of just witnessing this this terrible story first of all that you you suffered through as a parent, but just the the beautiful way that you just have been open to what God is doing. And it is so clear that he is working through you in what you're doing now in Redbird Ministries. So maybe just describe for people, because there may be people who are listening that either know somebody who could benefit from what you do, or they themselves could use this kind of support. Um, Right now, what kinds of things are available if people go to redbird.love? Yeah, so absolutely. So um, the the grant in the grand scheme of what Redbird does is we partner with parishes and dioceses to provide in person support. But mm-hmm. we understand like not all parishes and dioceses currently right now have in person support. Right. So as we grow and develop with these chapters, uh, we have eight dioceses with the commitments uh, that we're implementing right now. But mm-hmm. as we grow, there are online things that we do offer. We do we offer online spiritual direction. So one, our spiritual director, Miss Kathy, who is also a part of our board, uh, is a mother of law. So she does online spiritual direction. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, small groups that we offer. So in the fall, we're starting in November, a couple small group and uh, a mothers of law uh, small group. We do monthly webinars. We have uh, an online community that you can join, which is broken out by flocks of loss Mm -hmm. because we believe in grouping our ages so that these families can find a commonality in their story and walk and accompany uh, one another uh, in prayer. Mm -hmm. So that's all on our website under the programs tab. We do offer uh, locally here, and that's um, another program that we're developing is our retreat. So we do Mothers of Loss retreats called Restored, and we do Fathers of Loss uh, retreats called Follow Me. And so those will, those two programs will probably be available next year. We're putting them to design and packaging. Okay. So that, you know, our idea is that it takes so time, so much time to develop these programs and the graphics and to make them like what they need. So we want to take these uh, programs so that anybody can implement them in their area. So all we're worried about is serving hearts. You know, it'll take that pressure of having to create all this from scratch. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So this, I'm so excited to see what the future holds for you, especially at this point where you've received this grant from our Sunday visitor. Do you have specific plans for how you're going to use those resources yet? Are you still just in the shock phase? we had to pitch it. (laughs) So. (laughs) Oh, you pitched your your, program. Okay, I see. Okay. So you have very very specific specific plans. plans. So uh, there's two 
things that we'll able, it's a three-part process, but we'll, we're fully funded on uh, step one and step two. So our first step is we're creating what's called the Good Shepherd Program, and it's an educational resource mm-hmm. so that clergy and church staff can understand the needs of families of loss so that they can receive families like our, ours and accompany them in the pastoral way. Yeah. Oh, that is so needed. So that's the first thing yeah. we want to develop. And then the second thing that we're developing is an, a branded app. And so um, our struggle uh, for the last couple of years has just been um, like we have a desire to serve, but we realize that there's not, ev- they're not there's not boots on the ground in every parish or diocese. And so if a loss happens, right. a way for our clergy or church staff to plug someone in to support um very quickly would be to to develop a branded app so that they can, you know, um, come into this community and start to develop authentic vulnerability. Um, that way, when mm-hmm. or if they have these um, support opportunities on the ground, that um, they would have a trusted brand and trusted family of grieving um, individuals and couples that they, when they're ready, they could go to in-person support. And then the right. third thing that we're going to right. develop, which we're fundraising for now, is what we call the grief journey. And so it's going to be a five-year mm-hmm. process that um, someone can come in to support uh, because it's in the first five years that couples divorce. Um, it's about 70% mm-hmm. is the divorce rate. And so we want to try to wow. um, help these couples um, and we're putting them into this um, to this to this program called the grief journey. And so it's going to be, um, a five year, every year we'll have a different theme, um, starting with the cross, but it'll every month they'll receive like a video or from a family. Well, one week it it goes per week, but the whole concept of it is to evangelize, to catechize them and to open their minds to what the church teaches about suffering and also to, uh, dispel some of those, lies that we tend to want to believe when we're in that pain. And so sure. that, that's what that journey is going to do and to provide like support through the process. Yeah. Wow. I really look forward to seeing all of those come to fruition. What a beautiful ministry. What a beautiful gift you are giving to the church. My guest has been Kelly Bro, who is founder, along with her husband, Ryan, of Redbird Ministries. You can find out more at redbird.love. Her autobiography is called Hiding in the Upper Room. We will have all of those links at the show notes over at ascensionpress.com or, um, you know, connect with Kelly directly over at redbird.love. Kelly, I want to thank you for your openness and the beautiful way that you share your story. What a gift your parenthood, as painful as that process has been for you of losing your children. I think it's just turned into this beautiful gift and we can see the working of God's grace in your life in such beautiful ways that it's really encouraging and inspiring to all of us. So I'm really looking forward to the ways that your ministry is going to grow because God is already doing a great work in you. Thank you for sharing all of this here with us today on Girlfriends. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about this. Yeah. Well, God bless you. Yes. So we've got more of the show coming up for you. But first, we're going to take a quick break. I'm Danielle Bean, and you're listening to The Girlfriends Podcast. 
If you've enjoyed the Rejoice Advent resources in the past Advents, you know firsthand how God can use the season of Advent to foster a personal encounter with Him so that you are ready for the person of Jesus Christ at Christmas. My name is Father Mark Toops, author of the Rejoice Advent Meditation Series, and I'm excited about this year as we invite you on a pilgrimage as we learn more about the places, people, and events of the very first Advent. I am humbled with all of you who have uh, celebrated with me the gift of Advent. Over 100,000 people have been a part of the Rejoice resource in the past. It's been a humble privilege for me to walk with you, and I'm excited about this year's pilgrimage as we learn more about those places, people, and events of the very first Advent. To learn more and to go on the pilgrimage with us, go to rejoiceprogram.com. Until we see you in this Advent journey, God bless you. I just want to thank Kelly for coming on the show and sharing so vulnerably and so beautifully about her own loss, her own wound, her own story of struggle and trial and really wavering beneath the burden of the cross, which is something that we all experience in varying ways. But I just find so much hope and healing in Kelly's testimony. And I'm going to be sharing, of course, all of the links to those resources that we mentioned in our conversation. So if you have need of these kinds of resources, go to ascensionpress.com. The show notes are always there for you where you can check out the links that are related to the show's topics every week. So I want to thank Kelly for being part of today's show. But also, I want you to know this. If you are struggling with anything related to especially pregnancy loss or loss of a child or struggles with your fertility in any way, I am praying for you, especially this week, the week that this particular show gets published. I know it's going to be a source of hope and healing for so many people, and yet such a painful thing to listen to. You might have shed some tears while we were listening to that conversation and listening to all that Kelly had to share from her own experiences. I know I did. So know that I'm going to be praying for you in a special way during the week that this show publishes. And I want to invite everyone listening to do the same. Let's devote ourselves on this particular week, on this particular day where you listen to this episode, to praying for the healing, the complete healing, and for peace and hope for everyone who is suffering from this kind of loss, especially during this time heading into the holidays. So I want to thank Kelly for being part of today's show, but I want to thank you for being here too. Thank you for all that you do. But the most important thing you do for girlfriends is show up. I'm so grateful for the time we get to spend together here each week. Thank you for that. Your presence is truly a gift to me. And until next time, I hope you enjoy your day and God bless your week. Girlfriends is a collaboration between DanielleBean.com and Ascension, the leader in Catholic faith formation. 